Everyone feel properly greeted this morning? Anyone need a greeting? Raise your hand if you still need to be greeted. No one? Oh, God bless you, sister. You want to get up and give us your name? No, that's all right. Just a quick survey before we get into our study this morning. How many of you have a camera phone? Raise your hand. Oh, well. I do, and uh, I love it. <laughs> anyway, open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 20. If you are new or visiting Calvary Chapel, we study through books of the Bible verse by verse and chapter by chapter, and we are in the Gospel of Luke chapter 6, so that's the reason for you opening there. Luke chapter 6, verse 20. Well, you know, I know you think it's funny, but some people don't know. They think, they think oh, the pastor, my wife called and told the pastor something about me, and then he designed his message around that, you know. I want people to know that we just happen to be in Luke chapter 6 this morning. So if it's about you, God has busted you big time. <laughs> Let me read the text to you, and you can follow along. This is the New King James Version of the Bible, and it says this, Then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the unthankful and evil." Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Let's stop there and pray. Father, we thank you for these words this morning. The Word of God, of course, alive and powerful, Lord. We're blessed by it, uh, and all of it inspired by you, as you saw fit. But the words of Jesus are especially precious to us, Lord. We want to hear them in a very close and personal way, knowing that Jesus is here in this place. 
ministering to each and every heart. He promised He would be, and He's fulfilling that promise now. And so speak to us, we pray, in a way that only You can, discerning between our soul and our spirit, the innermost parts of our being, Lord. Be there. In Jesus' name we pray, and everyone said, amen. Many of our young people have just begun high school or college. They probably attended some sort of orientation, either a class or several sessions to introduce them to their new environment, letting them know what to expect and what is expected of them. Jesus had just chosen His 12 apostles out of a larger group of disciples. The 12 and the rest of the disciples were about to embark on a new phase of ministry. Jesus essentially gave them an uh, an orientation, a sermon to introduce them to their new environment, letting them know what to expect and what would be expected of them. The sermon begins in verse 20, and it runs through the end of chapter 6. Jesus first told them what a disciple could expect. That's in the verses we read. A disciple could expect many negative encounters, but Jesus didn't stop there. He also told them a disciple could experience much positive encouragement. That is the remainder of the chapter. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, if you are, then this sermon is for you just as much as it was for the 12 and the rest who originally received it. It is, in a sense, your orientation to discipleship, or if you've been walking with the Lord for some time, it is a refresher course. It is one sermon, but we must break it in half due to our time constraints. In the first half, in session one, you're told to expect many negative encounters. Specifically, you will encounter enmity and enemies. Enmity is hostility and antagonism that is directed against you simply for the sake of being a Christian. In verses 20 through 26, Jesus described the enmity you can expect for the Son of Man's sake. And then secondly, you will also encounter enemies, those who would curse you, spitefully use you, strike you, and take from you. These are described in verses 27 through 36. This is what you can expect. What is expected of you? What is expected of you is what we commonly refer to as the Beatitudes, the blessings listed in verses 20 through 23. I'm calling them the D-attitudes, with D standing for disciple. These and the other things Jesus said are the attitudes a disciple must develop. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, the enmity you encounter can be met with D-attitudes. And number two, the enemies you encounter can be met with D-attitudes. First of all, in verses 20 through 26, let's take a look at the enmity you encounter as a disciple. Jesus had just been performing miracles, and they were the kind of miracles that only the Messiah promised in the Old Testament could perform. The Jews were expecting their Messiah to come, and when He did, to establish on the earth the kingdom of God. Jesus had just chosen 12 apostles. It seemed He was establishing the kingdom with this new leadership. As you read on in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, His disciples definitely expected the kingdom, and they expected to be ruling on thrones in the kingdom. 
They were ready to take cabinet positions in Jesus' kingdom on earth. Jesus knew that He'd be rejected by the Jews. He knew He'd be crucified. He knew He'd be resurrected and ascend into heaven. He knew that the kingdom on earth would be delayed until His second coming. He was preparing His disciples for the enmity they would and that we will encounter while we wait for His return in a world that is hostile towards the love of God for lost mankind. Bear in mind that Jesus was describing the enmity you would encounter as a disciple for His sake and the sake of sharing the gospel. He was discussing your attitudes and your response towards what we would call personal religious persecution, personal religious persecution for your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that's important because you have to see that Jesus was not recommending that we be tolerant of criminals or that we tolerate nations that attack us and remain passive. Jesus was really not a pacifist in that sense of the word. There are a lot of people who take verses like this out of context and say, look, we should turn the other cheek. If you're attacked, let them overrun you. Jesus was speaking to His disciples about their sharing the gospel and about the, uh, the encounters that they could expect as religious persecution came in. There are other passages of Scripture that talk about our response as a society or as a nation to violence done against us. And I, I don't need to tell you that in the kingdom... When Jesus returns, the Bible says He's going to rule with a rod of iron. No pacifism in the kingdom on earth when Jesus Christ is around. Immediate justice and judgment in a loving, gracious way. And so, bear that in mind. We're talking about these things. I thought it was important I say that because we're commemorating the anniversary of 9-11. There should be no confusion among Christians that there is a war against terrorism that it is a morally right war and a biblically uh, accurate war for us to wage. Now, one more quick comment about the context that we're in. There's a disagreement among scholars as to whether or not this sermon is the same as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's gospel. It is similar. It has similar beatitudes and other things, but it is not the same. It was given in a different place and at a different time. Jesus it shouldn't be unusual for us to realize that Jesus spoke similar things, uh, you know, in His ministry. Everything He said didn't need to be original. Uh, he was giving these kingdom philosophies, and He did it here in Luke on a plains area at a certain time, and He did it in a different way in the Gospel of Matthew. And so having said all that, with our mind set on what's happening, let's look at verses 20 through 22. It says, He lifted up His eyes toward His disciples and said... Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Now, Jesus directed His comments, it says, toward His disciples. Knowing the future, knowing what they would encounter, Jesus gave them an orientation to discipleship. For the Son of Man's sake, they would encounter the following things. They would, and, and I say will be, applying it to us, they would and will be poor. Jesus was describing material poverty. 
I know over in Matthew's gospel, he talks about the poor in spirit, but here he's talking about material poverty. I know that because in verse 24, he contrasts the poor disciples with those who are rich with this world's goods. And then he says disciples would and will encounter hunger. They would and will encounter weeping. This doesn't mean you will be somber or crying all of the time. But you will avoid many of the world's sources of mirth and live a more focused, meaningful life. And they would and will encounter men who hate you. Their hate would be expressed as excluding you, reviling you, and casting out your name as evil. Now, get the picture here. Jesus' disciples had been with Him all night as He was praying. Then He chose 12 to be His apostles. Just as there were 12 tribes in Israel, now there were 12 apostles. They all had this expectation of the literal, physical kingdom of God on the earth where Jesus was going to overthrow the Roman government, set up the rule of God in Jerusalem, and that they would be the, chief, the 12 chief guys in that government. And then Jesus says, okay, guys, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be poor, hungry, and hated. Uh, Excuse me, Jesus? (laughs) Question from Thomas back here, you know. Could you go over that again? I got the first part where you looked at us, but I I missed all the notes, you know. It's interesting. This is not at all what they were expecting, not what anyone was expecting. And you read through the Gospels, it doesn't, until Jesus ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit came upon them, they never fully understood what he was talking about, but he, with love and grace and compassion, was preparing them for what they could expect as his disciples. Other interesting point, if you're out, let's say, looking for a job, maybe you read the want ads and help wanted, and then you show up at a place and you uh, apply for the job and, 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 and they call you and they say, you've got the job. You usually know what the job is, don't you? Don't they usually tell you, you know, it's, you're going to do this or that, you need this requirement and, you know, this education and all that? I mean, you, you only look for certain kinds of jobs, you know, the help wanted ads that are in alphabetical order in terms of what you're looking for. Okay, well, Jesus, see, what he did in ministry, and this is a great pattern for ministry for you to get into your heart. Jesus looked out and he said, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. You 12 guys, I prayed all night and my father showed me, you 12 guys, you are the apostles. Come on forward. Now let me tell you what you're going to do. You're going to be hated, hungry, persecuted, and for the most part, martyred. Let's go. Uh, excuse me. I'd like to talk to my shop steward for just a minute. <laughs> that is not at all what I... What, Jesus, the kingdom... Remember the Old Testament prophets, you know, the kingdom on earth? You understand? And see, this, is, this will help you, though, because a lot of times in the ministry or ministering or serving, however you want to put it, I'm not talking about, not talking about the full-time ministry necessarily, but just if you serve in the church in any capacity, sometimes you're going to wonder what your job description is, and I'm just going to go, I don't know, I'm too busy sending camera phone pictures, you know, but <laughs> figure it out. And uh, you don't always know what you're signing on for, but that's what it means to be a servant. You're, you're signing on to be a servant. I've done all kinds of way out things, you know. Uh, whatever your idea of being the pastor is, 
you should hang with me for a while and find out what it's really like. Glorious, I'm not getting down, I think it's great, but you, just the different errands and little projects and things that have really nothing to do with what you think being a pastor is. And so it, it always, uh, it's always funny to me when somebody's doing a ministry and they say, well, I, I didn't think it was going to be like this. Okay, well, you're just like the 12 apostles because they didn't think it was going to be like that either. But it was great and they were blessed for it. And so bear that in mind. Now, Jesus was not saying it was more spiritual to be poor or hungry or weeping or hated. He was not saying that everywhere and all the time that this is how disciples would be treated, but he was preparing his disciples for the kinds of encounters they have indeed experienced throughout the centuries, and they continue to experience in many places today to a greater or lesser degree. Read the book of Acts, read Fox's book of Martyrs, Read about today's persecuted church, and you will see what Jesus described happening throughout history. These very things are how disciples have been treated. The key here is that though the world may be hostile, the disciple is looking beyond this world to the future kingdom of God. Whatever light afflictions you may encounter and be called upon to endure as a Christian, You're already a citizen of the future kingdom, and you shall be filled and laugh when it is established as Jesus returns to the earth a second time, a thing that is yet future to us. So verse 23 says, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. You're told to look forward to your spiritual future. And by doing that, you can rejoice today in the future day. You can leap with joy right now, knowing that in the future, your reward is great in heaven. And this is the testimony of many multitudes of of saints who have been persecuted and even martyred over the centuries, losing all of this world's goods, having their families killed in front of them, about ready to lose their own life rejoicing and leaping for joy, even in the face of their captors and persecutors, because they understood these words of Jesus Christ. For the present, you find yourself in good company if you're being persecuted, just as people persecuted God's prophets of old, so you too will be persecuted. So Jesus says, now, you guys, I know you're thinking kingdom thoughts here, but you're more like the prophets in the Old Testament. I want you to, do you guys remember Jeremiah? Do you remember Isaiah? Do you remember these guys? They weren't well received for the most part by their own people, and a lot of them were killed and martyred for their faith. And so Jesus is being honest with them. But who wouldn't want to be one of these guys in in the sense of the honor and the, uh, you know, when you look back on these guys and think, oh man, what a life. What a fantastic life. Oh, Elijah, Elisha, the way that God used those guys. And Elijah, especially, you think there's a guy, the Scripture says, just like me, a man with like passions, the Bible says. So, you know, it's fantastic. And yet, the truth is, they endured much suffering for the kingdom of God. Now you can understand why Jesus said you were blessed, even though you might be poor and hungry and weeping or hated. You see everything backwards from heaven's eternal perspective. Thus, it is not a blessing to be poor in and of itself, but you are blessed if and when you find yourself poor for the sake of the gospel because you have security in the future kingdom of God. 
And the same holds true for each of the other blesseds Jesus spoke to you. So again, just to keep it in context, people who look at this and say, well, I'm going to get rid of all my possessions because I want to be more blessed by God, that is not at all what Jesus is talking about. He is saying that if you're a disciple, under certain circumstances and in certain places, you might not have anything. You might have it taken away from you. You might have to live in abject poverty for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when that happens, you're blessed. He, you know, so, so get that. Context is so important to the words of Jesus Christ so that we don't uh, fool ourselves into thinking we're more spiritual than we are or miss the real point. Contrast the persecuted disciple now with the unbelieving citizens of this world in verses 24 through 26. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. These are unbelievers. Their hope is in this world. They value being rich and being full with the things of earth rather than the things of eternity. They laugh now, meaning that they enjoy the superficial entertainments of the world. They're they're shallow is what it means. They're not very deep. All men speak well of them means that they fear men rather than God. They're more interested in pleasing men and fearing men and being like other men than God. They are like the false prophets who led others astray on their way to hell. Jesus shattered the expectations of His first apostles. As I said, they didn't quite realize it until after He rose from the dead. They wouldn't hold high offices on earth, not yet. They would be hounded, hunted, persecuted, and martyred. But Jesus said they were blessed because of that treatment, because it was for His sake, and He was busy storing up riches in heaven for them. Not only will you have this enmity, but you will encounter enemies, verses 27 through 36. If there is a key to understanding the next few verses, it is simply this. As Jesus' disciple, you can respond to your enemies with God's supernatural love. We are specifically talking about the way you are treated by unbelievers for the sake of being a Christian. And that means a couple of things. First of all, we are not excusing Christians who bring upon themselves persecution, oftentimes for their lack of Christianity. Brother, would you pray for me? Sure, what's happening? I'm having such a hard time at work. What's going on? I'm being persecuted for righteousness' sake. They know I'm a Christian. They're persecuting me. Wow, what's happening? When I'm late five minutes, my boss comes unglued. He's all over me. But this other guy was late four minutes. He's not a Christian. And they ignore that. Okay, let's pray. Father, help my brother to get to work on time and quit being an imbecile. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. You get the idea. And we're not talking about necessarily relationships between believers in these verses. Certainly, there are things that are applicable, but this is the disciple in the world being persecuted by the unbeliever. 
relationships between believers, lots of other passages in the New Testament, especially in the epistles, the letters, that talk about how we are to relate to each other. How are we to, uh, are to, well, in fact, they are the one another scriptures. There's about 58 or 60 of them. Uh, love one another, pray for one another, show hospitality to one another. And then there's a whole way of our dealing with one another if we've been offended and all these kinds of things. And so we're really not looking at our interrelationships as Christians. We're keeping it in the context that Jesus had. You're the disciples going out into the world, hostility against you, enemies, enmity. This is how you are to act towards the unbeliever to seek to win them to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus presented a principle you can live by, and then he'll provide a few examples of putting that principle into practice. The principle is in verses 27 and 28. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. When you find yourself hated, being avoided, being rejected, being insulted, even to a certain extent being physically abused, you can experience God's supernatural love and you can express it by doing good, by blessing, and by praying for your enemies. Here are a few practical examples, verses 29 and 30. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. To fully appreciate these examples, you need to think like a first century Jew. Very important here so that we don't go too far or not far enough with what Jesus really intended. Before the law of Moses, the Jews had a sort of what I call vendetta society. Many old cultures had this kind of society. The Italians have made it famous, of course, uh, with the Sicilian mafia, the vendetta society of Don Corleone, you know, that kind of a thing where you make people offers they can't refuse. And, you know, uh, and the idea is that if you hurt me, I hurt you worse. And then once I do that, then you hurt me back even worse. And then I retaliate even worse. And it goes on sometimes decades or centuries of people hating each other and retaliating always to a greater extent. Then the law of Moses came and established the principle an eye for an eye. Now, some people think that's the same thing. Isn't that what we're talking about? No, very interesting. The eye for an eye limited retaliation and revenge. I could no longer go beyond the damages that you had caused me and seek revenge. I did have the right to seek restitution. And so if you stole my mule, I had the right to one of your mules or for you to pay me for the mule, but I couldn't go and burn down your house. And so, and so this is a big advancement in the history of human relations. It's, it's really a fantastic law. Jesus is refining that same way of thinking now even further. He said, instead of retaliation, instead of even demanding restitution, return blessing for wrongdoing. Very revolutionary. Why would you do that? I see it here as to be evangelistic. It is to show the depth of the love of God. 
Jesus didn't die for my rights. He died for my wrongs. If I am wronged by unbelievers for the sake of the gospel, I can choose to forego my rights and return blessing instead. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He says, you're, you're at school, you're in the workplace, you're in your home, surrounded by unbelievers, and they are oppressing you, they are uh, persecuting you. You, in our society, of course, have rights and uh, rights of restitution, that kind of thing, but Jesus says, now, there are going to be some times when I want you to forego those rights for the sake of the gospel. Not always, and this is where you have to have a really good, close, personal walk with the Lord. I don't want anybody to leave here thinking that you can never exercise your rights in society or in the home or that you have to always take what is wrongfully done to you. But I do want to open up your heart to taking a few more wrongs than we normally would like to. Paul the Apostle, for example, he entered into this mindset and he would use his rights for the sake of the gospel. And maybe that's the way to look at it. Goes to the city of Philippi, he's preaching the gospel. They, uh, the leaders of the city grab him. They beat him, him and Silas, and they throw them in the Philippian jail, which is a dungeon, and they're in stocks. This is the famous episode, you remember, where they were singing Calvary worship songs at midnight. There was an earthquake, all the jail cells opened, and the jailer is going to kill himself because the prisoners are escaping. And Paul says, hey, don't, come on, this is a God thing, don't do that. And, and so he goes, okay, goes over to the jailer. He says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul shares the gospel with him, goes to his house in the middle of the night, get up, get up, you can't believe what's going on. The whole household gets saved. Then they have a good time and go back to jail. They lock themselves back in. Next day, the Roman officials come, the magistrates, and they say, okay, we're going to let you go. Get out of town. And Paul goes, okay, hey, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Oh, one thing, one thing before I go. Must have slipped my mind while you were beating me, but did I, did I mention, did you see my passport? Do you know I'm a Roman citizen? Oh, man, these guys were in deep, deep trouble because they had beaten a Roman citizen without a trial. These guys could go to jail and worse. So Paul's like... And so he used, he, used his, he used his rights. Now, see, he didn't demand his rights. When they went to beat him the first time, he must have been led by the Spirit to keep his mouth shut and, and take his beating. He didn't say, hey, cut it out. I've, I'm a Roman citizen. <laughs> you can't beat me. He had a different spirit about him. But afterward, he said, oh, you know, if this Roman citizen thing is big. He used it so that they would have favor towards the Christians. Uh, I don't want to say that it was a, a bribe, but, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was interesting, you know, the way that he used that. That's what I'm talking about. Don't always demand your rights. Think about whether you should and what can be accomplished through the wrongs that are being done to you. Rather than give case after case every possible example, Jesus gave the following rule of thumb in verse 31, just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. Now, I think if we keep it in terms of the type of men he's talking about, 
unbelievers who are persecuting you, it'll make more sense. Look past yourself and the wrong that is being done to you. Put yourself in the unbeliever's position. They are hell-doomed, dead in their trespasses and sins. They're condemned. They're without the ability to act any differently. There's a sense, a very real sense, in which I'm surprised we aren't persecuted more because unbelievers really can't help themselves. And yet, we, we struggle with this still. But anyway, this is the kind of person we're dealing with. When you were just such a person, you needed a Christian to example for you the supernatural love of Jesus Christ. And many of you can give that example of someone. You can say, yeah, there was this guy I worked with or this gal, and the more we made fun of them or the more pressure we put on them, the more it bothered us because they just gleefully and joyfully went through their day with some kind of a supernatural energy that I couldn't understand that made me sick to my stomach, but it was something I wanted, something I recognized as being otherworldly. Now you are that person. Every enemy provides you with your opportunity to be an example of the love of God for lost mankind. I have to say some of the most blessed times I ever had as a Christian were just before I went into the ministry when I was in the title insurance business being totally mistreated and going through all kinds of trials there at our company. It was so glorious. I'd come home and share with Pam, and we go, oh, man, wow, they said that to you? He cussed you out? Yeah. You should have been there, man. Took me into his office and was pounding on the wall and cussing me out, and the other employees were acting like they couldn't hear it. And when I came out, I was smiling, and they were all like, (laughs) nobody wanted to talk, you know. It was all real tense, and I just, it was fun. I loved that kind of stuff. Jesus contrasted these de-attitudes with that of unbelievers, verse 32. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. Notice the repetition of the phrase, even sinners. It is to remind you of what I just said. You are not one of them anymore. If you act just like them, only reciprocating good for good and evil for evil, always demanding your rights, how will they ever know that Jesus died for their wrongs? You know, two of Jesus' disciples here, two of His apostles, James and John, called the sons of thunder because they wanted to call fire down from heaven and destroy some people. And you think, I would never, I can't relate to that. But even in my own heart, sometimes, Lord, you know my situation at work. Please take my boss and move him to another department. (laughs) I don't want anything bad to happen to him, Lord. Let Let me just say that. I'm not asking you to flame him from heaven, not at all. I'm not like James and John, but would you get him out of my hair? Sons of mini thunder, I guess. I don't know. When God wants you to pray, oh, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Give me your joy. Let me pour it on. 
so that the love of Jesus Christ just breaks this guy. Whatever he dishes out, Lord, give me the strength to be able to handle it in Jesus' name. That's what we're talking about this morning. And so he says in uh, verse 35, uh, love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Sons of the Most High just means you have characteristics of your father. You're the example of Christianity. When we return God's love for their enmity, our enemies can see Jesus. They can know that you are treating them the way Jesus would treat them. It can open their eyes and heart to the good news that they too can receive the forgiveness of their sins and be saved for eternity. It's as if in that area of, you know, of that, in that persecution, it's as if they now are at the foot of the cross and they can imagine Jesus saying to them, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Therefore, be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. You know that the definition of mercy is not getting what you deserve. The definition of merciful would then be not giving the other person what they deserve. The unbeliever wrongs you. They deserve retaliation. You deserve restitution. There's no doubt about that. But you don't give them what they deserve. You give them what they don't deserve. You give them love and grace, just what your Father gave to you. Amy Carmichael wrote, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. God gave you His Son, Jesus Christ, to be your Savior because He so loved the world. You and I are now like Him. We are to give of ourselves because we want others to know God so loved the world. We're halfway through Jesus' orientation to discipleship. If this were a modern-day orientation, everybody would be looking at their watch saying, time for a break. Let's take a, a lunch break. I've been to some orientations where after the break, many of the people from the first session didn't return. <laughs> they determined that the material was not what they wanted to hear or that it was too demanding. I remember when I was at UC Riverside, I'd sign up for certain classes, and, and uh, mostly in the science and math department, which is not my strong suit. And if I couldn't understand more than 10 words, that was the only class, you know, then I would drop that class. And so that, they're usually an orientation, hey, this is what it's going to be like. The next week, you know, there were only half as many people because you just can't hang with calculus or whatever it was. Discipleship certainly is demanding, and it's also hard to say. But actually, discipleship certainly are two words that should never go together. But sometimes when you write something, it's so poetic, and when you say it, you're just spitting on yourself. But <laughs> alongside the enmity and the enemies you can expect to encounter, there are encouragements to experience. Jesus has already told you about the encouragement of eternity. You are looking ahead to heaven, and you live backwards while on the earth because you're on your way home to Jesus. There are going to be at least three other encouragements in the remaining words of His sermon. All I can say to you is be the kind of Christian, not necessarily literally or physically, but in your heart, the kind of Christian that says, this is discipleship, and I'm going to come back after the break and get the rest of it. Let's pray together. Father, how gracious you are to be straightforward with us. Lord, you, are, you just 
tell us exactly the way things are. And Lord, uh, though from one perspective it seems negative, and I even use the word negative, Lord, in the middle of this, you're saying rejoice, leap for joy. I mean, not just be happy or, or have a smile on your face, but be leaping for joy. These things are supernatural. They are beyond us. We need the filling of your Holy Spirit to appreciate them and to accomplish them in our lives. Lord, I'm not here to explain how this happens. Uh, it happens because we're Christians and because you love us and you pour out your love and grace in our hearts. So often we just need to get our mindset on what is true. We need to just agree with you, and that's that point of faith, Lord, where, okay, I believe this. Oh, I can forego my rights in certain situations, Lord, so that the wrongs done to me can reverberate in that environment and become a testimony of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Maybe that's what's happening in some of our lives right now, Lord, and we don't realize it. Not that we're blowing it, it's just that we've forgotten what it's like to be a disciple. We're not directly persecuted, we're, we're not imprisoned, our families aren't being torn from us, none of our, our loved ones are being shot in the head for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so we don't really recognize some of these things as persecutions. We, we think of them in terms of just being a citizen of this world and our rights and responsibilities. Lord, I, I pray that we would understand our lives are spiritual. They're essentially spiritual. And you've chosen for whatever reason to let us be in this great country with our great uh, rights and laws and to experience Christianity this way. I pray, Lord, that we would rise to the occasion and above it and know that our circumstances are the ones that you've determined for us to be examples of Christianity. I don't know if it's harder or easier, Lord, to be physically persecuted, but that doesn't really matter. This is where we find ourselves. We want to grab a hold of these principles and know that you are living your life through us in the midst of unbelievers, Lord, sinners who need eternity just the way we did. Use us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. As we close our service this morning, as each week, some of our deacons will be down in the front to pray for you and to pray with you. I invite you to come forward for that. It can be a sweet time. May God bless and keep you this week. In Jesus' name.
worship you, my King. And I will find my strength in the shadow of your wings. Reaches to the heavens Your faithfulness Stretches to the sky And your righteousness Is like a mighty mountain Lift my voice. And I will lift my voice to worship you, my King. And I will find my strength in the shadow of yours. Reaches to the heaven Your faithfulness Stretches to the sky Amen. God bless you.